0: Welcome to Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast, hosted by Andy Baldacci. Each week,
1: Andy interviews a successful agency owner who shares their proven strategies to help you build and grow your agency.
0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to episode number 46 of Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Baldacci, and today I'm talking with Henry Corona of Finance Sort. The dream of many agency owners is to one day be able to sell their agency and, frankly, get a nice payday after putting in years of hard work. A few agency owners are able to pull it off, but for most, it doesn't pan out for one reason or another. Henry specializes in, among other things, handling mergers and acquisitions of agencies, and in his career, he's seen it all. Today, Henry shares the common mistakes agency owners make that prevent them from being able to sell when they retire and also what you need to be careful of during the actual sales process. If you hope to sell your agency someday, you need to tune in this episode to make sure you're on the right track. So without further ado, here's Henry. Henry, thanks for coming on the show today. Happy to be here. So the depth of your experience is impressive to say the least. When I looked over your LinkedIn, it was almost dizzying just to see how many different facets of the agency world you've been involved with but i think the easiest way to introduce you to my listeners are just the question what led to you starting your current company finance war back in 1991
1: well i was in the film business in los angeles and um in principally in mergers and acquisitions but generally corporate finance in entertainment and creative services i went to virginia to do a um an acquisition for someone, and I liked it, and I stayed. I met Dave Martin, the founder of the Martin Agency in Richmond. He had sold the Martin Agency at that point and was forming another agency, and he had some challenges in setting up his agency. I was able to help him, and then I helped him sell to um, an agency called Falgren. Smoot Falgren was the owner in Atlanta. The fact that I'd done this for Dave Martin got a lot of attention in richmond and the consulting business grew out of that
0: what do you do today like how would you describe the services you offer
1: i look at agencies for operating efficiency profitability um, i do consulting and the management the financial management of the business but always with an eye towards the value i i do expert witness work in valuation of professional creative services, and with agencies, I'll come in and we'll do a valuation and we identify the elements of value in the business or in the value of the business, which is redundancy. Then in some cases, I just help them tune up their, their businesses and make them more profitable and they continue to do what they've been doing and they continue to grow. And then at some, But at some point, all agencies look around to sell. Or, in some cases, many cases, it's exit strategies for the older owners. I don't believe your audience is facing the
0: older owner. There's a few, but but no. Traditionally, I I think most are on on the younger side. But but it's funny because when, when you mentioned that, it's something I really want to dig into the details of, of how you work with them to add all that value to get them with the eye towards exit plan. But one thing is when I talk to a lot of agency owners, many have the idea sort of just in the back of their head that one day they'll be able to sell. But in reality, very few agencies actually do have that sort of exit. Have you seen any common reasons for why agency owners aren't able to sell?
1: There are a number of reasons. The the owner hasn't reinvested. Um, his profits in the company, it's instead of reinvesting the the increased profit, he takes a higher salary or a bigger draw. As you get middle-aged and older, you have to start thinking about succession planning. Um, you have to think about replacing yourself. That's kind of a corollary to basic management 101 is that when you hire, you want to hire somebody who's a smarter, smarter than you are. Um, not not everybody. I mean, it takes all kinds of people to run a successful business. I mean, there's some people that do what they're told and they do it well, and that's a real find. Um, but they're never going to go above that. They've got to be told what to do. You need those kinds of people that you tell what to do and they go off and they do it. You also want people who have a little bit more I won't, it isn't simply intelligence, it's just drive, it's just, you know, two people with the same amount of intelligence, one just likes to be, just direct me, tell me what to do and I'll do it. And the other guy goes, well, wait a minute, let's do it differently, let's do it this way, you know, and then and then those guys fall into the people who know what they're talking about and the people who have no clue. <laughs> you know, they just think that they're supposed to be energetic and question everything, and that's what makes them the go-getter that, that will rise up the ranks. Um, in some cases, they're correct. In other cases, they're mistaken uh, because they just don't have the ability. You know, it takes all kinds of of, um, of skill sets to to build a, a scalable and upgradable business. Um, so lack of succession doesn't just mean you pick your the guy who's going to buy you out. It means... Who's going to replace you so that you don't have to be mired in, um, in day-to-day details for any particular client. You can work on the business as, as a whole. And, and it's a distinction that's a
0: hackneyed phrase, which is work on the business rather than in the business. For that area, though, it's when the succession planning. I, I know a lot of agencies, they're so busy delivering work, finding new clients, and they're in that cycle like when is it too early to start doing the succession planning or should that be done almost from day one?
1: Well, if you define succession planning as I'm the owner, I need a number one guy that's going to replace me eventually uh, that I can trust and I can groom to take over for me. You know, that's pretty one-dimensional. It uh, What I probably said badly was, Start hiring people who are smarter smarter than you are or as smart, you know. Start delegating a responsibility to people, to your employees who seem capable and able to, to fulfill the responsibilities. Start doing it at an early stage so that you're practiced, so that you, you have a sense. And, you, and, and most importantly, so that you make some mistakes when all the chips aren't on the table hiring and firing is a real critical skill that I, you know, I'm not, there are all kinds of adages about who you do, what, you know, how you do this or how you do that. But to some degree, you know, people are different. And so you have to, you have to train yourself and by making some mistakes and better to make the mistakes of hiring the wrong people at the, at the early stages. And, but so you start right from the beginning, just keep that in mind that you're going to, You're going to be. You're going to train yourself to manage people for succession, and then as the years goes go by and the business grows, God willing, the business grows, and you have more. Then you have real succession ownership kind of issues rather than management issues. And but you've prepared yourself and you've done it in your business and you've learned the way that's right for you.
0: In the beginning, when you, when you start, when you're just starting out, when you're getting a lot of clients and more than you can handle and you start making those first hires, a lot of people will often rely heavily on just straight freelancers, contractors to kind of outsource some of that work so that they can take on more projects. But the trouble is that if you're only hiring people that, as you were saying, that will just strictly follow instructions, it's going to be very hard for you to find the time to work on the business because you by necessity have to be in the business because no one else is.
1: Yeah. And one of the ways to, to think about this, and we all know people like this, you can get so good at doing stuff that, you know, it's going to take you time and a half to train somebody to do what you can do in half the time. That's also an investment in your business, isn't it? Um, So you have to bring along people who to. To take over, and sometimes it requires you've got to spend more time than you would just doing it to teach the other guy how to do it. But if you've done that right, you pick the right person. Now, once he takes over, now he or she takes over. Now you've got much more time to to get the bigger client to to work on new business, to do all those things.
0: And when you said that, when you said that, that's an investment that made me think of a question about the the first mistake you talk about agency owners making: and not reinvesting profits in into the agency. And when I first heard that, in terms of traditional business sale, I would think that the owner taking out, if if there's more profits that are coming out of the business, I would make it a more valuable business. Does invest in the profits? Reinvest in the profits, does that directly impact the valuation or is it making those reinvestments allow you to grow the agency in another way? What, what is so important about the reinvesting the profits? Um,
1: well, everybody is faced with the dilemma of hiring ahead or behind or after revenue. So you've got client number one who's good enough. Now you've got client number two who's a little bigger. And you know that you're going to have you're going to need two more people, or three more people to handle number two client. So when do you hire him? Do you hire him? Do you go to that client and say I've got these people on staff, or do you go to that client and lie about I've got, I've got all these people? I got it. I got it covered. No problem. Um, because and you may have it covered because you have the um, the freelancers that are doing it. If you're making, if you want to continue making a profit, you, you have to assure somebody that you can do the job, then bring the people in underneath. It's generally less expensive over time for big, as revenue grows, to have employees versus contractors. However, there's cash, right? And I have um, a friend client in um, the Midwest who has an agency, and he started up. He's probably made it. He would tell you that he's made every mistake that he's that's possible to make. He's made it. Um, And then right now he's getting a lot of new business. He thought he would sell his way out of the deficit. So he hired all of the people and then he could truthfully say, I got these people sitting on at cubicles in my office right now. We can do this. But the growth wasn't happening fast enough. And um, even though on paper, his income looks really good. His cash is strapped. And that's a dilemma that I'm sure some of your listeners are going to identify with. And it's a dilemma that isn't, it isn't an easy fix. You know, you've got to manage this. This is, there's another adage is if this were simple, if it were easy, your in-laws would be doing it. <laughs> so um, it's not, it's, it's hard. That, and that's part of why um, an outside objective assessment is useful Uh, at times and worth the extra money that you're paying out that isn't productive but then you're getting a, a more accurate you know the assessment the objective the outside assessment is going to be less about personalities it's going to be more about productivity and sometimes when you have a team that you've assembled and you guys are all working together you feel a camaraderie and and you know this guy's got my back you know and this guy may have your back, but he's not competent.
0: With those first two out of the way, were there any other uh, mistakes that you often see? And again, not to generalize, but were there any mistakes you often see agency owners making that, that make it harder for them to sell down the road?
1: Yeah, it's um, getting too many small clients. When you're first opening up, if you got the, the dry cleaner on the corner, you, this is good. You know? I'm, your guys paying me. And I get a discount on my direct link. <laughs> um, but it, it's a it's a small business and a, a a small retailer. Maybe it's a local chain of four stores, you know. And you're banking on this person growing, on this business growing, and then your your billing will expand. But what happens? And listen, I have a direct parallel in my business, my consulting business. So I take every client seriously and i view almost every assignment as requiring a similar amount of time that's not entirely true because if somebody's got complex systems it's going to be much more involved you know a larger business but the smaller ones i think of as the you know it's just it's actually more important to the small business owner to get to solve a problem to correct you know a mistake than it is for the larger business that, oh, it's just one, it's one it's one percent of my revenue. You know, if I screwed it up, I screwed it up. You know, what are you gonna do? But for the small business owner to make a mistake, it's fifty five percent of his business. It's twenty five percent you know, it's a big deal and it's his livelihood. But I can't charge a I can't charge the same rate to a small business that I would to a large organized, you know, if it's a $20 20 million AGI agency, um, we've got some latitude there. If, if, it's, if it's a $200,000 agency, we don't have too many we, we don't have a lot of extra money and we don't have a lot of room for mistakes. So I better just you know that I work probably a, a lower I go to a lower scale working with, with agencies than some of my competitors do. I don't do a lot of small business work because it takes up the same amount of time. And, you know, I've got to watch my business as well.
0: When someone is working with too many small clients, like is it is the reason why that prevents the sale? Is that just simply because their revenue is not going to be as high or is there more of like a, an inherent issue to that? Is that something acquirers just don't want to deal with because they know they're not going to make much money on it? Or what specifically about that is the problem?
1: Well, the acquisition part is secondary. Our primary purpose is to make a profit and to increase the profit. Because if you do that, then you got options. If you're not making any money, you don't have any options except the one ads. When you have a lot of small clients, you fill up your day with small client problems. You don't have time and, and you begin to take on a kind of the profile of a small business and you're, you, you don't think big enough. And the problem at the the point of acquisition is there are a lot of different kinds of buyers. There are some buyers that are strictly financial. There are others that are strategic and putting a network together and want uh, an agglomeration of of agencies. Um, And some want a completely integrated network where they're all under a single name. Everybody's working together. The one that's putting the agency network together and wants everybody to integrate Wants to make sure that the agency he's acquiring or they're acquiring is not too dependent on one client because if that client leaves, everything falls. Leaves, everything falls apart. So they want three or four, um, three-legged or four-legged stool. You know that that, that kind of has some. Four is better than three because if you lose one, you can still kind of balance and keep going. But if you have too many, it's not going to be as its profitable with and are are you familiar with the sort of allocation of overhead that concept
0: not specifically, so I'd be curious to if you could expand on that
1: okay well, it costs you money to um to service, but it also costs you money overhead to house your services, so your fees have to be a combination of if you're doing us on an hourly basis and everybody speaks about and aspires to billing by value that's harder to do so let's just for and let's but let's recognize that that's maybe the best thing to do but it's some it's difficult to get that so but hourly you and i are going i work for you you send me out and we divide up my salary by some number of hours in the course of a year and then i it comes we get to to my direct cost, but then in addition to my direct cost, so uh, let's keep it really simple. So uh, let's say you are paying me ten thousand dollars because you don't you're kind of cheap, you know? you're not. So you're paying me ten thousand dollars, and so and then I'm gonna put in a um, thousand hours. Let's say all right. So so you're paying me ten. That's ten dollars an hour, right? Thousand hours. So now your cost, you got to pay me $10 an hour for, to, to cover my big salary of 10000 But then in addition to that, you've got, um, so I'm your employee. You decide, because you really like me, I, I'm your employee. So um, now you've got withholding and all of that stuff. So just figure 20%, just to keep things simple. So now that means that my $10,000 salary is really a $12,000 cost. So now, instead of $10 an hour, it's, um, you know, for the 1,000 hours that I'm working, it's $12 an hour. But you've got rent, and you're paying for my parking, and, and then you're paying, um, and you've got the electricity, and you've got to buy me a computer, and you've got to pay for, you know, just add it up.
0: Exactly. It's not just – it doesn't come down to just your salary. Exactly.
1: exactly. So yeah. let's say – so traditionally, historically, you'd figure rule of thumb, salary times two covers basic overhead. Okay? So now you're at two times $10 an hour. So now it's $20. Where's your profit in there? You you know, you're pricing me out. You, you know, if it's at $20 an hour – you still got an extra 10, but, but in theory, that extra 10 is all your cost. So what you do is you say, okay, I'm going to add 50% for my profit. So I'm going to make $5 on every hour I bill you out for. At, so I'm going to charge the client $25. That's the thinking
0: more or less. I mean, that's extremely simplistic, but that's... No, And then, I'm, but then you also have to think about the utilization rate and all those other things that go into it and... Charging enough to maintain your, your margins with the small clients, that alone is just going to be very difficult.
1: But the other part is you've got to make sure you've got to pay attention to how much time I'm spending on this stuff. Because even if you're only paying me $10,000, but I'm, half the time I'm body surfing or at the pool, you
0: know, you're losing money. Back when I, when I first asked this, you said it's about acquisition second. And I really think that's what all of these mistakes identify. That's what they come to, back to. It's not as though check these boxes and acquirers are going to love you because you check the boxes. It's because if you can avoid these mistakes, you've built a highly profitable agency. And that is what ultimately matters.
1: Right. So at the end of the day, you're, you're making and now you've made, let's say you're making 25%. So now the in theory the acquirer would be really happy the financial buyers are not going to buy you unless you're making three four five million dollars in net income a, a year so I would guess that some of your smaller agency listenership would be very far away from making five million in net income I mean everybody would love to make that right but Traditional financial investors will be looking for a return on their investment, but they also these capital groups that come in and buy um, ha- assign yearly fees to you, like on the order of three to four to five hundred thousand dollars. So you have got to be making enough to pay that to them. What so are that,
0: the fees for? Like, what are they? I guess even labeled as.
1: Um, well, they're administrative fees or reporting okay. fees. They 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 will arrange the acquisition through a combination of debt and inequity. The debt has to be reported. There's certain kind of reporting requirements that these companies, um, that the banks or the financing sources, the primary sources have. So they have to receive certain reports. And 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 the capital group has to has just paid you a bunch of money and they're gonna they're gonna make money too on your deal in the network groups they're a little different but there's still an overhead issue you know all and you've heard that big agencies can't afford to take small clients it's because their overhead uh, is so onerous that they they lose money if they if they take a small client that's why it's an opportunity for smaller businesses to take it and make money, they'll make money because their overhead isn't that high. Because so their overhead allocation is much lower. And on the other hand, what will happen is their people will be will tend to be less um, expert, maybe less professional, but certainly less expert than the bigger agency senior people that they can trot into, you know, a problem solving meeting and um, sometimes they, they just don't even match up there's just no comparison but the smaller clients will hire the smaller agency because they can afford to hire it and generally what they do at the at the smallest levels even up to up to a million in billing i think i think the owners are are the key people and generally what happens is the owners have a common story they say I'm on your business, or one of my partners is on your business, we take you seriously, you are important to us. Any business owner wants to hear that, I'm important to this guy, this is great, I'll pay him. I'll pay him to continue being important
0: to him. And that's the strata that you go through. I'm going to stop Henry right there for a quick word for our sponsor, but don't go anywhere, we'll be right back. The Agency Advantage podcast is brought to you by Hubstaff. Hubstaff makes time tracking software for remote teams so that you can stop tracking time with spreadsheets or whatever else your team decided to use that week and start getting the insights you need that can only come from having accurate data all in one place. Our best clients are agency owners, and while they love the accountability that comes with it, it's sort of like Upwork but without the crazy fees, where they really find the value is by being able to connect Hubstaff with their project management tool to see how much time it really takes to deliver each part of a project. Think of it as Google Analytics for your team. I've been absolutely blown away by how many times an agency owner has come up to me and said, Andy, we started using Hubstaff a month ago, and after looking over the data, we realized we've actually been losing money on one of our most popular services. If you don't know what your real profit was on your last project, then you would need to try Hubstaff out. To say thanks for tuning into the show, Hubstaff is offering all of our listeners a 30% discount on all of our plans. All you need to do is head over to try.hubstaff.com forward slash podcast and use the coupon code advantage that's try.hubstaff.com forward slash podcast and coupon code advantage all right let's get back to henry when you were talking kind of about the nitty gritty details of a typical sale and about the fees that were added on and a lot of those things, to me, that was something I wasn't aware of and I'm sure a lot of listeners weren't either. So do you mind if we we dive into what an actual sale, if you get to that point, what it typically looks like? I know it varies by size, by specific type of agency, but is there a general process that selling an agency follows? These, ten or so steps is
1: are the way to to kind of characterize this. So first of all you determine that the the buyer and seller have something in common and there's some what's typically referred to as chemistry but that they want to they'd like to do the deal. They like each other well enough to do something. And then you speak generally about value and then and so liking somebody is okay but the next step is establishing and agreeing that you're going to move forward so that's number 2 then number 3 is you discuss the value so if the seller is thinking 5 million I'm going to sell this for 5 million and the buyer is thinking I'm going to buy this for 2 they're probably not going to go beyond step 3 so you have to discuss value and agree on it general structure not the specific details but the structure is just as important as the amount. Um, so somebody says, "I'm going to give you ten million dollars, and you have to work ten years for me, and then I'm going to give it all to you at ten years." Then you say, "Thanks a lot." No. <laughs> um, so how much down payment? What do I have to do to, if there's an earnout? What do I have to do? What happens if I fall below my hurdle rate? You know, I got to I gotta get the I got to get the a million five in income. What happens if I get to a million?
0: So for the hurdle rate, that's what—that's the number they have to earn above in order to satisfy that part of the deal, or, or what exactly is that?
1: Yeah, hurdle rates dangerous. It means a number of other things. So it's really the minimum earnings level that you have to get each year if you're in an earnout structure. So once they've agreed in principle, then anello a letter of intent will be um, issued. Sometimes it's just a letter of interest that doesn't have any commitment. Generally, that has um, the smart, experienced buyers will put uh, what's called a standstill uh, provision in any LOI. Even if it's only a comfort letter that is just barely a letter of interest and not any specific, they'll still ask, they'll still require the candidate for acquisition to agree that they will not talk to anybody else for 90 days so that they can get full attention and they get this deal done. So once that's been signed, and that involves a lawyer, by the way, that's the first part where you've got to have, you have to have legal advice. Um, I have seen enough of these um, that I can assess them, Um but I do think that a lawyer needs to become familiar, and this is the stage typically bring them in. And then, if everybody is professional and experienced, what you do, what you expect is you meet to plan the process. How are you going to do this? One of the important parts will be establishing who's preparing all of the documents, how do they report, what's the timing, all of that kind of stuff, and they identify the role of your key executives now. We go back to the beginning of our little chat here and we talk about not reinvesting in the business if you decided you weren't going to hire Sally but you're going to go ahead and hire Henry because he's cheap but I'm not going to hire Sally because she's way too expensive and besides I got boat payments to make I got you know I've got the house and I've got the vacation we planned I've got and and that's great you know but you're not reinvesting you should have hired Sally, not Henry. Uh, because Sally is much better at her job than Henry is at the job. This is just a fourth or fifth step, and we're already looking internally at who's doing what. Then, once you've agreed on that, you move to the next step. So step six is you agree to proceed and you inform your key agency staff, but only the key agency, and you try to keep it without, uh, not to be general knowledge so your competitors don't find out. You enter into the due diligence stage, and that's where you need um, the accounting analysis. This is part of what I do, and you need the lawyer in there to, to make sure that the contracts are right. Um, then you will inevitably have some conflicts, and so figure that there is another full step where, where you're um, confirming compliance, eliminating conflicts, and agreeing and at that that's a touchy point you know that's a point where you can just throw your hands up and say forget it i'm out of here the next step is is once everything's been agreed to it needs to show up in a legal document exactly as it was agreed to and that's again a, a legal issue you have to have your lawyers there and to make sure that everything you agree to is reflected accurately and then lastly you go to closing so that's a i think it's about 10 steps yeah, I'll count steps. them up
0: afterwards Yeah, but no I, right. I think that gave a lot of insight into the process because I think especially for someone who hasn't gone through that in any type of business there's a lot more to it than one would expect and it makes sense when you think about why when you're doing a big purchase like this with so many variables you need to do your due diligence you need to make sure everything's very clear but there is still a lot involved in the process
1: Right, and you know, um, Andy, the small agencies, um, so if we had, if we're looking at, at 10 or 20 agencies all between, and the digital firms that you tend to work with, and they're all between 200 and 500,000 or maybe a little higher, but in that kind of range, uh, the majority
0: of those will never grow
1: to be a substantial size, big enough to be acquired.
0: One thing I wanna talk about is how big an agency actually needs to be in order to make a sale possible. Before the call you had mentioned that a good target was three to five million dollars in net income. Is that accurate?
1: I, yeah, yeah, let's not get caught up too on that. I'm working, for, I know a buyer's group that will buy down to a million or a little below, but they don't have any big charges and they, they have a philosophy of integrating and they're buying clients. So if the small agency has a significant part of a large client, they're interested. If it's, if it's only making 750000 they might listen. If it's making a million five, they will listen. Um, they will explore. And my job is to uh, counsel a small agency or a small business, small digital business, and help them make realistic choices those 10 steps that we were talking about in an acquisition um it's a kind of a, it's a, a similar process if because um that an agency a small digital shop might have to go through in order to join to be merged into a, gen, a more general service agency that doesn't have the strength and the experience that the digital shop has in the internet you know Channels, and so you need to pay attention. You can't do this. Uh, you can do it any way you want, actually. Any, but in general, you have to be very careful about what the terms are when you're absorbed up into um, uh, um, a larger advertising agency, for example. And that's the fate. That um, that's probably a, a good option for for many small startup digital shops just to become part of a larger unit and then grow there and become the key, you know, the key digital tech guy that ever that I think if the world continues as it is, technology will be more and more important in the future than you know, more so than now. Even as important as it is today, it's gonna be more critical.
0: Right. And so it's if you can position your agency, even if you are on the smaller side, if you can position your agency as someone with skills, significant technical skills, expertise, experience, everything that another agency is lacking, then there is an opportunity for not necessarily a complete acquisition exit, but for a merger of some sorts. Is that what you're getting at?
1: Um, Yeah. that's um, And I think that that's a realistic choice for the majority of people in the in the digital space, as opposed to we're going to build this up into a juggernaut, and somebody's going to pay us big bucks,
0: <laughs> right? Because I think I do think most listeners, of this show, even if they are on kind of the smaller side of things, they do have goals to to get bigger, to expand. But the aspect of a merger is something I haven't considered much of, so I'm curious to explore that a little bit in the in the minutes we have left. But so. You said that this is something where you need to be very careful about the terms of the deal. What considerations need to be taken when figuring out what those terms are? The terms
1: are um, how much equity the smaller digital firm can earn as part of the bigger agency. Um, for example, there's a, uh, um, here in South Florida, there's a, a general advertising agency that bought a digital tech firm about 16 17 years ago the owner got 15% of the business of the overall business at the time of he didn't take a lot of cash he took equity and now the business is about to be sold he's a major partner and he's and that's the outcome the good part
0: so it'll be a lot of it will be balancing the considerations of how much cash do you want upfront versus equity, in making sure that it's a balance that suits sort of your needs but also your risk profile.
1: Um, yes, and remember that as part of the bigger agency, you now have more security than you had before. Mm. You were just on your own, so there are a lot of benefits, but you've got to be careful and make the right choice. Um, and you know that's the whole idea about who you hook your your wagon to, right?
0: I'm curious how finance or how your company in your services and your consulting, how does that fit in? Like, how do you help net clients navigate this process today? All
1: right. So I have a call in from, I got a call from a, from an agency that isn't the owners, um, 60 and he wants to sell and he knows he's got to work for a while to sell. But so he hires me to come in. I do evaluation, and then we identify a half a dozen uh, candidates who could in in his area acquire him and so that's that's one way to do the process another way is i did a valuation of an agency that was willing to sell i had an a, a buyer i knew of a buyer who would be interested in buying provided the financials were right so the agency hired me we, we did an assessment and the value that i came up with was too low to interest the seller. We were looking at a real-world option to, to sell, but we didn't have enough profit. So my job was to tell him, here's what the business is worth and this is why. Here, if you can change these several things, we, we can come back to the
0: well. So Henry and I are actually both located in Florida, and we were recording this during a tropical storm. Probably wasn't the best idea because actually at this point in the interview, the internet cut out a little bit. Luckily, we were just about to wrap up. So whether it's coming up with a valuation or digging into the terms to make sure a potential deal is as good as the valuation makes it seem – Henry helps agency owners navigate all of their options when it comes to selling their agency or merging with another agency. If you want to talk to Henry and get his advice on your own situation, you can email him at henry at That's F-I-N-A-N-C-E-S-U-R dot com. You can also call him at 305-748-0888 or visit his website at financeor.com. like most listeners of this podcast, you probably want to sell your agency someday, and that's great. But if that's the case, you need to be sure that what you're doing is actually building something that not only can be sold, but also that will be attractive enough to be bought. For the first point, you need to make sure that the agency doesn't rely on any one person, including and especially yourself. And you also need to have a clear succession plan in place. For the latter point, there are a handful of traps you need to avoid, but two of the most common issues that Henry sees are not reinvesting your profits into the agency and not having large enough clients. If you've built your agency right and are ready to sell, you still need to make sure you understand exactly what the terms of the deal are. While valuation is important, there are many other factors like earnouts, vesting, fees, and all of that that can sabotage any deal. And while this may be one of those good problems to have, It is still something you need to prepare yourself for so that if and when you do get to this point, you know what to look out for. And even though Henry didn't say it himself, I think he's a little too humble for that. I will. If you're looking to sell your agency, make sure you talk to an unbiased professional who has experience in the industry. Their guidance is going to be invaluable. All right, that's all I have for you this week. If you enjoyed the show and learned something, head over to iTunes and leave a review. Tell me what it was that you learned. I love hearing from listeners and positive reviews help us grow our audience. So if you could take a second to do that, I'd really appreciate it. All right, guys, I'll talk to you next week. See ya.